Thank you for downloading our podcast. We are tempted to pursue a more tangible religion. We can fall into a trap and think we need more than Christ. But Hebrews assures us that Christ is all we need. Join us as we study Hebrews to learn more about our great Melchizedekian priest who presides in heaven and calls us on this wonderful earthly pilgrimage. One of the things we can take from Hebrews is that reminder that we live our lives as a community in the presence of God, as a people redeemed by the great Melchizedekian priest, Jesus Christ. And so we can say that sort of in in an abstract way, right? I mean, that's generally what we're picking up from Hebrews as a theme. Understand you're called to your heavenly rest. You have a great priest. He intercedes for you. And so chapters 12 is, is getting into the exhortations and implications of this. Hebrews 13 is getting into more explicit exhortations, but I wanted to put this in the context of just verses 1 through 6 because we hear again in Hebrews uh, the strong exhortation. This is how you are to live. This is what you are to see. And then there's this sort of this gentle nudge from the Old Testament reminding us who we are in Christ, calling us to see the consistent, steadfast nature in love of our God, that does not end. And so as we hear this, and we're called to live out the gospel, and we understand there's these strong challenges for how we are to live, how do we hear these words and give exhortations to one another, because that's sort of what Hebrews is getting at in in this context of how we individually exhort one another, How how do we do this without being burdensome, without laying a a heavy burden on the backs of God's people? And and, and so we end up losing Christ. We say, oh, here's Christ over here, but but somehow I've got to live up to a standard and and meet his expectations and be holy enough. How, How do we keep this in check? And I think this is something very valuable that we learn from Hebrews 13. So we hear first living as a family, living in Christ, and living in confidence. And so let's begin as living as a family. I guess for alliteration, I should have said living as a community, looking at this now. But anyway, living as a family. We, we see here this exhortation for us to love, that we let love continue. Now we might hear this and say, well, we, we hear this in other places in the New Testament. I mean, we think of, Romans 12, 20, it becomes a competition to outdo one another in love. Peter exhorts us to love from the heart in 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, the passage we're probably very familiar with and living out love and what this means. But I think when we look at Hebrews, there, there's something that's very important here. As uh, Going through commentators, and again, it's one of those bummers or one of those disappointments, when you get to the end of a text, you, you feel like you know the text and you want to go back and re-preach everything because you finally figured out the book when you finish it. Uh, and that's kind of what you get at, or at least for me, in chapter 13. That Hebrews wants us to understand the, the richness of our community. And so when, when you look at this and you put this in the context of Rome... And again, I I think this is a Roman synagogue receiving this letter. And as they receive this letter, 
It's the understanding, here we are as Jewish people, everything was great, this Christ guy comes along, messes it all up, and now we have these pig-eating Gentiles in our synagogue, right? And so you can understand the banter going on behind the scenes. Look at these guys, you know how they eat, you know how clean they are. So when, when you hear this, and the author of Hebrews is saying, let love continue, this is pretty radical. Because he's saying to an elite Jewish individual, you are to look at that Gentile who's unworthy to be in your presence, and you're to embrace him. We might say, well, you know, you're reading this into the text. But what has the Old Testament taught the Israelite? When the Israelite gathers together at their feast, the sojourner is not to participate, right? They're, they're to be respectful, but they don't participate because they're passing through the land. They're an inferior individual. When Israel goes into the land of Canaan, as Joshua here is called to our attention in this context, they are to exterminate the nations. Because as they have this unique call, they are to build heaven upon this earth. And the Gentiles, the nations, the goim, uh, putting it in the Hebrew language, you, you may hear that language, goim, which means peoples, they're not welcome. You think about the temple and how they set up the temple. You have the Gentile court, and then you have the inner court, and, and you have the place where the priests can enter. And so this elitism is something that's just something they have been taught their whole life. Now, this letter of Hebrews is saying, hey, let brotherly love continue. That beginning Gentile that you see as unclean, it's part of your community. Embrace him. Welcome him. That's your job. That's your call. You think about that, say, well, if the nations aren't welcome, and Hebrews is saying, yeah, yeah, they are now. This is a call of the gospel. This is the nature of the church. This is how the gospel goes out. The Melchizedekian priest, Christ Jesus, does not just secure the Jewish identity. He does not sit upon the throne of David as the Israelites expected, but he's seated in heaven. So you're starting to, to piece together all the significance of Hebrews 7 to 9, getting to the climax of Christ being this great priest. And what that means is not the earthly temple. It's understanding we are assembled before the heavenly temple. This is our identity. We have been redeemed in the one Christ, all made worthy. And so when, when the apostle writes this, and, and I don't think this is the Apostle Paul. I, I don't know who the writer is. My theory is this is an exhortation possibly from Apollos. But as this is an exhortation coming to the church, and as this, this goes forth, he's saying to the church, listen, don't have those interactions with people that are convenient. We say, oh, it's only in America we have a transactional interaction with human beings. This person's good for me. I'm going to make this person part of my network. This person can actually put me in other places. Therefore, I'll, I'll make connections with, with this individual. That's what James cautions us about, right? I mean, James himself says, hey, don't cater to the wealthy. Uh, don't say to the poor guy, hey, you, you can leave. And the rich guy comes in and says, oh, you, you have the place of honor uh, because you might have connections in government and you might be able to secure our place. So this isn't just an American problem. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, don't just show love 
to the people who are beneficial and worthy of your network. It's understanding who we are as a community. It's not a church of Jew and Gentiles. It's not a church of insiders and sojourners or outsiders. It's a church where a community comes together and individually we are to show this love. And so this is a pretty radical call. Uh, maybe in terms of our contemporary Christianity, it's one of those things where you can say, yeah, we, we understand that, we, we get it, let's move on. But this is a pretty radical call to see ourselves as a family of God called to sojourn together to encourage one another and, and to build one another up in the faith, truly desiring to see one another at the heavenly banquet table. And he goes on. And he says, don't neglect to show hospitality. Uh, so this hospitality is caring for strangers uh, who show up and, and, and who come along. Uh, this would most likely be where you have traveling missionaries, traveling preachers. You may have Christians going from place to place. And, and this too is a pretty risky exhortation that, that we can minimize. Uh, I mean, certainly there, there's an inconvenience in hospitality, isn't there? I mean, you have to set another plate, you have to do all sorts of things, make, make extra food, uh, be welcoming uh, to someone that comes into your house, etc. But in this culture, if, if you have someone who just gets out of prison, you welcome them into your home, you're identifying yourselves with their belief system. So as this person's put in prison for being a Christian, they come into your home and say, oh, I'm identified with this person. As word gets out, it may really cost you something like your own imprisonment. So when Hebrews is writing this and we hear this exhortation, he's saying, listen, you got to have a bigger picture of life. It's beyond your current circumstances, which is hard if we're honest. I mean, it's easy to be caught up in our own current circumstances. We get busy in life. But the author of Hebrews is saying you need to look beyond yourself and beyond your own life. And so, yeah, this is pretty strong exhortation. But it reminds us of something else with a historic precedent. There are those who have entertained angels when they were unaware. So this is referring back to Abraham, or Abram, or Ab you know, it was Abram at that time, when he hears of the promise that he's one who will uh, receive a son. You know, Isaac, laughter, it's where Abram and Sarah kind of laugh about that. So he receives this great promise. You think of Lot entertaining angels. They literally saved his life uh, because they announced to him, they're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. You need to get out of here now. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, you can think about the risk factor, but he reminds us maybe there's actually a great blessing as well that comes to us by the grace of God uh, through this. And so this reminder then of, of understanding this love, we're a family, we're a community. Uh, when individuals are in prison, we welcome them. Uh, we entertain those who come into our community and care for them and make them feel at home. But going on then, he tells us that we are to live out the gospel in Christ Jesus. Now verse 3, he's making more explicit, and again, it's hard to, this chapter is another one that's kind of hard to divide because it's sort of a false division here. But verse 3 is building on verse 2. And what he's building on there is truly that reminder of, of living out the gospel. Remember those who are in prison, those who are mistreated. Now, when we hear this, we say, okay, so we need to 
go and get involved in, in the prison. Now, normally in our society, uh, when we think of those who are in prison, they've usually done, depending on the level of prison they're in, they may have done some pretty horrible things, uh, or maybe they, they were Christians and they fell into some sort of a sin, they're dealing the con- with the consequences of that. And so for us, normally with prison, we associate it with lawbreakers. But if you look in the context of uh, Hebrews, notice if you skip down to verse 23, if your Bibles are still open, our brother Timothy has been released. So right here, Timothy, who receives two letters from the Apostle Paul, a minister of the gospel in good standing, is one who's released. So this is telling us that when you go into the prison and, and, and you sign your name, most likely in a logbook, that you were there, you go and you visit this person, whether it's house arrest or maybe a, a more dire type situation, you know, ranging maybe even to a potential of what we might think along the lines possibly of a dungeon, but pretty unlikely, more likely like a house arrest, you're still identifying yourself with this person. So if this person is put in prison for being a Christian and preaching the gospel, and you go in and visit this person, what does that say about you? Oh, this person's identified with Timothy. And so when the author of Hebrews writes this, that this is another big thing. When the author of Hebrews is saying, yes, you too might be mistreated. Yes, you too might be placed in prison. That's a possibility. So now I'm saying in our day and age, we may never get there and praise God for that if he's willing and wills for that. But in this time, that's a reality. This isn't something that's, that's a possibility or some crazy fantasy. This is a reality that you might actually end up in prison for doing this. But he goes on to remind us of who we are, that we are those who are also in the body. Now, uh, we can read this as thinking the body of Christ, but it's more individual, it's more personal. That's where I'm getting at. These are personal exhortations as this is singular. And so it's not just the body of Christ. It's reminding us we're to have sympathy, empathy uh, for those who are in this situation. In a very real way, it's reminding us we have sympathy. We, we can sympathize with the pain, the discomfort uh, that could happen. And so the author of Hebrews is calling to our attention what we've heard of our great priest. Christ is the one who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Uh, he can sympathize with the struggle uh, of being tempted and, and, and the actual force of that and what it means to endure that temptation. And so he's saying, have sympathy for your brothers who are in prison. It's easy to think, thank God I'm not in prison, but understand, this can happen to you. So have that sympathy. But going on then, he says, <clears throat> let the marriage bed be kept pure. Now there's two ways that this is assaulted. Uh, this isn't, again, just an American problem. In fact, our culture, believe it or not, is probably not as immoral as a Roman culture, which may shock some of us. But that's the reality of it. And so when he says this, there's two ways that marriage is attacked. On the one hand, it was acceptable uh, that men could have mistresses. Uh, so this isn't just a male problem. Uh, obviously, there's a mistress, so it's a male-female exhortation. Uh, this is not something that's appropriate, Hebrews is saying. You think about pornography in our day and age. Not appropriate is what the Hebrew author of Hebrews is saying. 
So in that general sense, it's that reminder, who are we? How do we honor our Lord? Well, by keeping the marriage bed pure, uh, by expressing our intimacy in the context of marriage between a male and a female, between a husband and a wife. So that's one way it's assaulted. Another way it's assaulted is where people say, oh, well, marriage is a physical thing. Uh, It's something of the lower body, animal urges. It's not something that we pursue. Therefore, we're going to pull away from any sort of physical or human pleasure because it's just evil. It's wrong. Well, the author of Hebrews is saying that's not a proper attitude either. When when, when we start saying that um, we we just have to pull away from society, uh, we need to pull away from all sorts of pleasures because all pleasure is necessarily wrong. The author of Hebrews is saying, no, we express this properly in how the Lord has created us. And so marriage is a created reality prior to the fall. So it's not inherently sinful. And so the author of Hebrews wants us to remember that. Now he reminds us. He reminds us about how the Lord is the one who judges those who are sexually immoral and adulterous. Now when he uses this language, it's significant. On the one hand, it's very much pointing to uh, intimacy or sexual, sexual relations outside the confines of marriage. But it's also calling to our attention to sexually immoral. Remember what we heard about Esau. And so in Scripture, this is something far broader uh, than, than how we normally think of it in our culture. It's broader in the sense that it's anything that's deviant from the will of God. And so the author of Hebrews is reminding us that we can't think, well, Christ is in heaven, I can live any way I want on this earth. No, we are called to live as living sacrifices before the living God. We are his redeemed. And so the author of Hebrews is reminding us, be conscious of this life and this purity of pursuing your God as a true heavenly priest and as you are his priestly people. Live for his honor and glory, confident that he is your shield and defender. And so when we hear this, say, okay, so, so we can be distracted, uh, pulled away from the Lord, and, and pulled into all sorts of earthly desires that are contrary to his will. But going on then, verse 5 and 6, again, one of those things where it's kind of hard to, to make this division and a hardline division, but there's an exhortation and the reminder of who we are in Christ. And the exhortation is basically that we struggle forward in the gospel. And he tells us to keep our life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Now, when we hear this, we might wonder, well, what is the author of Hebrews telling us? Is he telling us that it's necessarily wrong to have anything? Well, not necessarily. He's telling us it's wrong to be consumed by it in such a way that we just want more. That we just give in to greed, wanting more and more and more. And so the author of Hebrews is, is reminding us what other writers remind us in Scripture. Ecclesiastes, in its wisdom by Solomon, tells us that the one who pursues money will not be happy with money. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. This is why I wanted to read the law of God from Matthew 6. What is Christ telling us? God's indifferent? Is he saying God doesn't care about you or or God doesn't want you to have anything or or God's unaware that you need physical provisions to get through this age? Well, no, that's not what Christ says. 
Christ says, I'm the one who will provide. And so it's understanding that we wait upon the great provider. And we trust that he will get us through each day. That's what the author of Hebrews is reminding us. And that's where I think verse 5 is important Then it goes with verse 6. Because he's not saying, well, don't do anything, don't go to work, the Lord just drops us in your lap. It's where we proceed in the confidence that we want our desires to be consistent and in line with the Lord. Use wisdom, discerning what is bringing glory to Christ, right? This Christian life isn't always easy. Uh, There's a certain deliberate nature to it where where we want to ask ourselves from time to time, why am I pursuing this? Why do I desire this? Etc. But he goes on and he cites an important situation, an important transition. And he tells us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, this is a wonderful promise. Uh, I mean, right there, it stands on its own. What a wonderful promise the Lord's saying. Much like what he said to Abraham. Abram, you know, you kind of picture the Lord sort of looking him in the eye in, in, in this vision, you know, the angel of the Lord coming for Abram. I am your shield and defender, right? What do we struggle with? God's in heaven. I'm on this earth. How can God, who's caring for everything, know about me? When the Lord says it, I am your shield and defender. The Lord knows about you. When the Lord says, I will never leave you or forsake you, this is from Joshua 1 verse 5. It's a significant transition. Moses has died. Joshua is about ready to take the people of Israel into the land of promise. They've wandered the wilderness 40 years. Joshua is one of the few men who stood up and said, we can do this when the spies rebelled wandered through the wilderness 40 years, succeeding Moses. Can you understand the weight that is on this man's shoulders? He's got to go into the land, he's got to engage in war, and he's got to take this. How is he going to do this? What does the Lord say? I will never leave you nor forsake you. The author of Hebrews is inviting us to think back to that time of Joshua. Because Joshua 1 ends in Joshua 24, where Joshua is one who retires in his house after going through all these years of warfare, he retires in his home. And he exhorts Israel to follow the Lord as a priority. Many of us probably have Joshua 24 um, pasted in our house somewhere on a plaque or, or maybe even on the wall. It's a common text we always think about. But as it goes on, The author of Hebrews recalls for us something else that's rather brilliant. And he wants us to think about who the Lord is. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, this is basically taken from Psalm 37, verse 25. We think of Psalm 118, where a lot of this quote is coming from. And the end question that I wanted to leave on It's a rather profound question, isn't it? What can man do to me? Well, we went through Hebrews 11. What what can man do to me? Well, man can throw me in prison. We we just heard about that. Uh, Man can crucify me. He can put me on a cross. Uh, Man could execute me. We we read about that. Man could saw me in half. Man can starve me. Uh, Man can pursue me and make my life miserable, right? So when he asks that question, what can man do to me? And then the author of Hebrews is turning to us again and saying, really, what can man do to you? 
And the, the invitation of this is not to minimize our pain. It's not to minimize the reality of persecution. But when you put this in the context of Psalm 118, and this is why I wanted to use it for our call to worship, it celebrates the steadfast love of God. We waffle. We are weak. We do not rest in the Lord as we ought. But who's faithful? The Lord's steadfast love. The psalm begins with this. The psalm ends with this. The psalmist is one who talks about the pain of this life, the sorrows, the hardships, the disappointments he's seen with man, his struggles, his engagement in war, and where he seemed there was never any hope, recalling the event of the exodus through this psalm. And what does this psalm also cite for us? If you're familiar with it, it's the stone the builders have rejected. Who's ultimately experienced persecution? Our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who's a stone that's been rejected. He is a cornerstone, the one who builds up the temple. And so if we remember nothing else in, in our terms of, or in our times of turmoil, in our times of, of fear, our times of struggle, our times of feeling as if we're abandoned, this is where the author of Hebrews is inviting us to go. Saying, yeah, it's possible. Maybe you will in, in prison. It's possible. Maybe you'll end up being burned alive in Nero's garment. That's possible. Could happen. I'm not saying it's going to happen to us today, but in this context. And the author of Hebrews is saying, but at the end of the day, what can man fundamentally do to you? Because it can take your life, it can make your life miserable for, for several years, but at the end of the day, when your life is hidden in Christ, the great Melchizedekian priest, what has Hebrews told us about this priest? He can sympathize with our weaknesses. We can draw near to the throne of grace. He's not going to leave us. He's not going to abandon us. Psalm 118, celebrating his steadfast love. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, truly meditate on the promises of God. And so as we hear the, these exhortations to live out the gospel, and, and truly these are exhortations to live out the gospel. These are things we are called to do. But we think about them in terms of who we are. A people who have been redeemed by a shield and defender, who does not waver, who is not going to be overcome in a greater precedent, Christ's precedent of death to life guarantees the promises of God. And as we stand in Christ and the power of his spirit, as we walk by faith, we are assured we will not be overcome. And we can truly say, what can man do to me? So when we ask that question, how can we give these exhortations without being excessively burdensome? Well, there's no doubt the author of Hebrews is exhorting us to live out the gospel. And throughout these verses, it's individual. It's not just for the community. It's inviting us to say, how am I doing this? How am I living this out? That, that's the invitation. When we say, man, I, I don't know, there's a lot of frightening things that can happen to me. But the reality is, the people that received this letter, they could blight Nero's garden, being lit by him. That's a possibility. Not theoretical, not going crazy, not some sort of weird theory. That's a reality. 
And the author of Hebrews is saying, in light of that reality, I want you to ask yourself an important question. What can man fundamentally do to me? I am grounded in the living Christ. I have overcome in Christ Jesus. He himself promises he will provide for us. He'll see us through each day that he has numbered for us. We will live out what he desires for us to live out. And what is our fundamental call? To live our lives, to bring glory to our Redeemer. And so when we hear this call to live our lives to the glory of our Redeemer, we're not doing this in our own strength. We're doing it by his steadfast love, his steadfast mercy, and the power of his Spirit. When we lack our wisdom, when we don't know what to do, we draw near to the throne of grace because our priest is literally not only just a prayer away, but Hebrews 11 assures us, walking with us. Hebrews 12 assures us, even in the times we think that are so dark, God is there with us. Even as we may not appreciate or enjoy his discipline, he's doing this as a loving father to wean us off the comforts of this age and to call us to see the beauty of what we have in him. Let us then take this life in the confidence that our shield and defender is not merely walking before us, but as we see with Israel in the Exodus, it's walking behind them, next to them, in front of them, in the midst of them. And that's how we need to see our Lord as a shield and defender. This is what Hebrews wants us to see. Let us then live out the gospel for the honor and glory of our God, because we have been redeemed. And by the providence of God, we're probably not going to face the same sorts of things this immediate audience faces. And praise be to God for that. Let us not allow that to uh, put us to a place of indifference. But let us understand who we are. The people have been redeemed as the Lord has been moved by his mercy to move us from death to life in our conquering, victorious priest. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.